Hello, I'm Sarah Archer and you're listening to episode 184 of the Speaking Club podcast. Now, I thought since I'm at the Edinburgh Fringe, it was only right and proper to open this show with some of the best jokes from the last one that happened, which was in 2019. So here we go. My mate came second in a Winston Churchill lookalike competition. He was close, but no cigar. And that was from Goose. That tickled my fancy. Here's the next one. British people are like coconuts. Hard on the outside, but sweet once you crack us. Also often found full of alcohol and holding an umbrella. That joke was from Milo McCabe. And lastly, here is the one that won the Dave Award in 2019. I keep randomly shouting out broccoli and cauliflower. I think I might have florets. And that joke was from Olaf Falafel. I started this podcast for two reasons. Because I want to help people recognise the power of stories and humour in speaking. And because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organisations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello, it's great to be with you again. And I'm recording this episode, as I said, whilst I'm performing at the Edinburgh Fringe. And it's amazing to be back on stage again doing live theatre. And what's also brilliant is that so far we've had a sellout show and a five-star review. Anyway, I hope you're also well and enjoying the summer. And I'm very excited to share this episode with you today because it's going to give you some powerful and practical tools to give your talks more impact. Now, as you know, I believe and teach that if you can get your audience to believe what you believe, then there is a strong chance that they'll buy into your idea, product, service or movement. But there is an art and a science to achieving this. And a big part of that relates to the language you use with your audience. And that's why I've invited language expert Paul Ross onto the show. Paul is on a mission to teach entrepreneurs and salespeople how to powerfully increase their results through the power of subconscious communication. And he spent 30 years helping people fall in love with the power of language to influence, persuade, sell and turn those stumbling blocks into stepping stones. He's a master hypnotist, master trainer of NLP, an author and a speaker, and he's been regularly featured on lots of media outlets, including BBC, Huffington Post and so on. His talks get rave reviews and he has helped tens of thousands of people to successfully harness the power of the subconscious communication to achieve their goals. And I hope that's what he's going to help you do today as well. So let's get this interview started. Paul Ross, welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you. I'm so glad to be addressing your audience. I am excited to share the principles and methods and techniques that I find that create a lot of fascination and you listener as you're finding yourself growing more and more fascinated about what it is you're learning something valuable today. I feel so honored to be leading you in this exploration today into the world of 
subconscious language. Oh, I'm very excited too, having uh, having heard some of the reviews of you speaking, and I have a whole host of questions for you. The Definitely. first one is, what would you say is your superpower, and how did you discover it? My superpower is my ability to use language to get people to convince themselves to do what I want them to do. <laughs> Ooh, sounds cool. And, so tell me the story of that. The backup in this story, there's two little pieces of backup here. First and foremost, I'm a language geek. I confess it. I don't know how it works in over there in your side of the pond, but here we have grammar school, grades kindergarten all the way through fifth or sixth grade. Around the third grade, you start doing, you diagram sentences. Here's the noun, here's the adjective. Did you do something like that in school? Yes, we did. Yeah, English language, it's called, rather than the English. And I loved it. I was addicted to it. When the bell, bell rang for recess, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to do more sentences. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when it comes to words, I have a profound love, and I have obsessive compulsive disorder. When I write, like I wrote my book, here I am plugging it, I obsess over each and every word to make it, to me, a beautiful piece of persuasive language, a sentence or a paragraph, is like being a composer. I hear it in my head, I work out the notes, or being a jeweler. A jeweler takes something that really, if you look at a diamond in the rough, it's not beautiful. It's the human effort and genius and focus that polishes it and cuts it, that makes it a thing of beauty. So that's the first thing. The second part is I'm a failed comedy writer. I wrote jokes for comedians. I wrote one of the worst movies ever made. And to do comedy, even though I did it poorly, or didn't, you have to be able to understand where a language, where language is setting up the joke mm. so you can then twist into the punchline, the unexpected. So I use language there. I'm a copywriter. I write all my own marketing. I've made a lot of money, lost it. Uh, but I made a lot of money writing copy. And there I use language. When you write a piece of copy, every word counts. And then finally, I was a young man who couldn't get a date to save my life because my way of communicating with women was not emotionally evocative. I didn't know how to ask questions that evoked emotions and the imagination and fantasies. And so I stumbled on the neurolinguistic programming, which is, there's a lot of different definitions of it. For me, it's a study of how language structures consciousness, shapes decisions, and drives behavior. So I fell in love with NLP to solve my own problem of being a guy who just couldn't get a woman in, uh, if I was in a woman's prison with a fistful of pardons. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and uh, I learned to communicate in ways that were very attractive to women using NLP. Like, for example, if I were going to have a conversation with you on a date, I would not ask you, uh, what do you do for a living? That's a boring question. I would say, what does it take to be really good at what you do? And that requires you to really think of what makes you passionate about it, what you, where you're good at it, where you have to struggle about, about it. It's a question that requires you to dive much deeper into consciousness. So that's how I got into it. From all that, I moved into mapping over into selling. Because if you think about it like this, a date is one of the most difficult. It's like a sale. You have to prospect. You have to qualify your prospect. You have to establish rapport, make your sales presentation, 
handle objections and then do some close the deal and they get repeat business. So I mapped it over into selling and that's what I do now. I, my mission, my passion is to take already pretty successful people and show them how to supercharge the results through the power of language. Oh, well, let's let's put a timeline around this because I like to get into the nuts and bolts. So so you you were in love with language when you were at school. What yep. happened? You know, what what did you do when you left school? What did you fall into? How, did language play a part initially or was this a journey that? Yeah, it did. So it kind of did. This is a weird thing in college. So I was a student at UCLA, University of California in Los Angeles. There was like 40,000, 50,000 students, a small city. And I come from a small town in, as a suburb of Los Angeles. So I was overwhelmed. And um, I started to be really funny. I used to entertain people there. There was a preacher, a hell and brimstone preacher, who would come and preach at everyone in the free speech area and, and just insult everyone. So I started heckling him. And through heckling him, we would get crowds of like 150, 200 people. And I started to get a lot of attention. I thought, oh, hmm, this is interesting. I can be funny and make friends and solve my shyness. That was the little gap in between me being a geek and was learning to be funny. Because being funny, you have to think in a different way, but you also have to speak in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, then you you got interested in comedy. Did you try and make a career in comedy? I did. I failed miserably on open mic night. I I have the right. I have the right to forget my trauma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it is a it is a hard thing to do. But you're doing something which is which is very similar to it, which I will come on to, which is your speaking. You know, you're from all accounts, you're a fantastic speaker. So some of that stuff must be spilling into that arena. It but, does. It yeah, does. absolutely. Well, I'm going to come on to that. Now, you say that language moves the unconscious mind, and you've given me one example, but could you give me some more examples and, and sort of, yeah. you know, show how this can be applied in a in a sales or a speaking or marketing context. Absolutely. So one of the things I teach is how to use metaphor. Mm. Metaphors are extremely powerful. Lovely. So if I wanted to use a metaphor that talks about the internal conflict we often feel when we go to reach a goal, that part of us wants to hold us back and part of us wants to move forward, I could say that directly. But it doesn't have the impact of telling a story. I would tell a story. I'd say... When I was a little boy, eight years old, all the way back in 1966, I have a few years on me. There's tread on these tires that's worn a little bit. My sister bought my little brother Stevie a toy for Hanukkah. I'm Jewish. We celebrate Hanukkah. Or back then we did. My hobby back then was to break my little brother's toys. I don't know why. For whatever reason, my way of understanding something was to break it into pieces. And he recently forget, forgave me for all this stuff. But... Anyway, she bought him a toy robot. And back then, toy robots could do three things. You could push a button, make it go forward, push a button to make it go backwards, and make the lights in its eyes blink. So being a, uh, oh, I don't know what word I can use on your show. Being a schmuck, do you know what schmuck means? Yes, I do, yes. Uh That's forwards and backwards at the same time. The robot started to shake. One leg moved one way, one moved the other way. 
the wires in its little robot butt caught fire, blue smoke came out of its bum, and it fell over. The oh. robot developed an internal conflict because one set of commands were saying, move forward. The other said, no, no, stay where you are and move backwards. And isn't that the case so often with us? We want to move forward, but we feel there's a part of us holding back. So today, in our interchange, in our talk today, we're going to share together what that mechanism is, how that works, and how we can untangle it. Because who here doesn't want, don't you all want to be congruent and to stop being a robot and to move forward as a fully realized human being? That's the way I would do it. I would tell a metaphor or a story that engages the audience, but on the unconscious level, the unconscious mind is going, I already get it. I see the point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I talk about this a lot as well because it's one of my you know, stories and my thing too. I absolutely love, and I love the way that you've just done that. And and it and and the, the power of them is also getting past what I call the crock brain, that bouncer, because the story gets into our our minds and and does get up to that higher level in a way that sharing facts and figures and statistics just doesn't do and you, you experienced that as well the biggest one of the biggest errors i see in sales or persuasion of any kind is being too specific hurling facts figures data number at pe numbers of people before you engage their emotions and their imagination their subconscious process for making decisions because if you don't get them in the right, let me put it this way. My, one of my first principles for selling, and you sell from stage, you persuade, any kind of influence or persuasion, is to ask yourself, what state of mind do I want that audience or that prospect to be in when they receive my facts, figures, and data? And it's harder these days to get people to be receptive. Because people, number one, because people don't have the attention span they used to have. Absolutely. Even if they come to you interested at first, look, I don't know if you're, we're doing video as well, correct? Yeah, I'm yeah. holding up one of your number one enemies to being effective as a persuader or a salesperson, which is this little device. It's through this device, we get our Instagram, we get our TikTok, text, Facebook, instant messenger. My point being that people just don't have the attention span that they used to have. And so you've got to grab their unconscious and ask yourself, what state of mind did I want them in? How about focus? Mm. How about being on your side, wanting you to win, believing you, wanting to be led by you, seeing you within the first few minutes as a leader who they want to follow? Can you use, now you can't do that through conscious language. I can't say you're going to view me as a leader. You're going to believe what I say. You're going to focus on me. I can't do that directly, but using subconscious or hypnotic suggestion, if you will, we can do that. We can create those states. And I did it at the very beginning of this broadcast. You didn't catch me doing it. Yes, I did. I know what you were doing, but do you want to just I, unravel that for the audience? <laughs> what was I doing? You caught it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm an NLP practitioner okay. as well. Um, so you were, you were, get, you were. Um, you were framing the framing the start of the conversation in terms of you're going to get this from it, you're going to get that, you're going to be so you're really setting it up for people. You're putting the suggestion in there. 
But do you, want to, do you want to say it again, perhaps, and unravel it a bit more for, for the for the. Audience? I wasn't specific. I didn't say, well, as you're listening to me and you begin to learn how to up your close ratios, by th I said, you know, as we begin this exploration together and we share, now, right then and there, I'm implying a relationship. Yeah. As we begin this exploration together, that not as, a, well, today I'm going to explain to you, that's something I do to someone, but those words, we explore, share together, they are what I call implied relationship words. The unconscious mind says, oh, we have a relationship. Yeah. I trust you. Now, isn't that much better than trying to match and mirror someone's posture and think of what are their predicates, visual, auditory, kinesthetic? Yeah. How do I speak in that? And also, if you're addressing an audience of 100 people, you can't get rapport by matching and mirroring everybody. It doesn't work. So, so it's making that connection through the language um, and, and bringing people into the conversation early. Right. And I also said, I don't know at which points you'll find yourself growing more and more excited or feel that growing excitement. Yeah. So I didn't say you'll feel excited. I said, you'll feel a growing excitement, which presupposes they're going to feel excitement and it sets up momentum. It yeah. sets up propulsion system. Brilliant. So it's all very cleverly woven together. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of one of the your testimonials, I think this might build on what you're talking about. One of your testimonials talked about a three sentence phrase that people can use at the start of their talks or webinars that can massively increase sales. Yeah. I believe that was that? by that was by a guy Adam Adam Pisk, I believe is his name. I remember him clearly. I did one call uh, with his. He's got a call center in the Philippines. That I helped them out with. And that phrase is, before we begin this exploration together today, I just want to invite you to please share the questions that naturally arise when a great decision is being made. So I use those words, we, share, together, explore. I didn't say ask the questions. I said share the questions. Ask is something you do to someone. Share is something you do with someone. And then I was very vague. You know, did you study with Richard? No, Remember? no, I didn't. No, no. I did. um, a great decision is being made. I was very vague. You know, in NLP, they teach the power of vague, ambiguous language. Hmm. But by saying a great decision is being made, the unconscious mind has to dive down and find the meanings that make sense. So the implication is a great decision to buy is being made. Right. So say those three. Let's hear those again, just just uh, so people can. Before we explore, so I'll, I'll do this for each word. Before yeah. we explore this opportunity together today, I just want to invite, because invite implies, invite you to please share the questions that naturally arise when a great decision is being made. That's a great suggestion at the very end. Excellent. And he and he saw a massive ROI and just changing the way that yeah. these people do yeah. that. Why? Because it set the frame at the very beginning of the discussion that they could trust him. Mm -hmm. And it set that suggestion that a great decision is going to be made. So they, in a sense, had already pre-convinced themselves before he put the facts, figure, data, number. I think he went up by 300 to 400%, if wow. I remember correctly. That's amazing. This is powerful stuff. Absolutely. It's magic. Mm. It's, it's technology bordering on magic. 
if someone saw it from the outside, they would think that's magic. It's engineering. It's yeah. not it's mechanics, but it's pretty magical in its results. And it's interesting. So I, I've got a book on mentalism and I'm fascinated by people like Darren Brown and that sort of thing. But effectively, yeah. they're doing exactly the same thing, just at a, at a different level and in a different way. But it's using the same tools of subconscious suggestion uh, as these, basically. I think that's pretty true. Yeah. Those shows are also, to be fair, highly edited. So if you watch oh. Darren Brown, you're not seeing the failures. Ah, interesting. Interesting. But I'm sure your your stuff doesn't fail though, Paul. We don't want to, you know, we no, don't want to put that out there. No. That's a bit of sarcasm. Thank you for that. <laughs> no. sorry, but that's okay. Being no, a cheap no, no. monkey. Um <laughs> I I will say not everything works all the time. And it's a matter of skill. It depends on the willingness of the practitioner to work at it and to go out into the real world and have experience. Yeah. People say, what's my guarantee that your stuff will work? I'll say, well, you can look at the testimonials, but you could always say, I wrote them, which I didn't. My testimonials are real. I always say to them, your own results are your best proof. Go out and try the free stuff I give you and see how much it works and then come back to me. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I love this, you know, the, the, the thing that you're talking about here about really thinking about what state you want your audience in. So when I'm coaching people to speak, I'm always talking to them about, you know, getting ahead of the game, thinking about the strategy, thinking about what they want the audience to think, feel, say, or do by the end of the talk. But this is also sort of taking things up to another level. So thinking about and and then influencing that through the language right off the bat. Um, and and do you think this sort of thing can work for any topic? Any? You know, oh, it works for everything. Yeah. My last girlfriend was uh, a model and look at my face. <laughs> charitably, uh, I, I well, I don't photograph well. Charitably, I'm not, I have a lot of charisma. I can influence with my charisma, so I appear more attractive than I guess I am, although attractive is as attractive does. But if you saw the quality of the women I've been with, I'm not bragging, you would think there's no God that, <laughs> because this is not fair. <laughs> yes, it works for everything. Everything is an influence. Everything is a persuasion. Everything on some sense is a negotiation and a sale. That's just the reality of human life. Yeah, and I think this is, this is, the, this is the thing that people really shy away from, but it's inherent everywhere. You know, even when you're, you know, negotiating with your child tied in their room, you're having a... You're I was having just going to say, gonna say, my niece, who's now a mother of her own, she's like 30, has two kids. When she was like three years old, she had my brother wrapped around her finger. Uh, I said, Danielle, show me the voice. Will you talk to uncle, the voice you use when you want daddy to give you something? And she changed her facial expression. She said, daddy, can I please have a bobby? She couldn't say her eyes. I said, then what do you say? She said, do you promise? Do you triple promise? So she not only made the sale, but she got a commitment. You know, <laughs> then, she told me, then she laughed at me, you know, because she got it. And my, my other little, uh, my niece, Eden, I love my nieces uh, and nephews. She's my great niece. She said, Uncle, um, Uncle Paul, if you, right now, you're a zero, but if you can convince Iman Abba, 
that's daddy and mommy and daddy in Hebrew, to buy me a guinea pig, a rabbit, you'll be a hundred. And I said, Eden, I said, Eden, your uncle can talk almost everyone into anything, anytime, but even I can't convince your Ima and Abba to buy you a rabbit. She said, you're negative a thousand. I put on my Facebook feed, I said, uh, Grandmaster of Persuasion, zero. Uh, Six-year-old kid, 100. <laughs> <laughs> they are clever. They are clever. I mean, I mean, essentially, though, that's, you know, you know we start getting sidetracked slightly, but but babies and you know, little kids are born, you know, the whole way they're sort of their, their eyes, everything is all geared because that's all they've got to put, you know, they, all they can do is influence and persuade because they've got no control. You know, that's... That's basically what we have to do when we're little. So There's studies uh, that show that babies as young as like three or four months will fake cry to get attention. Wow. Well, well, I'm sure that's true, being having been a mother. <laughs> but there we go. Excellent. So one, one of the things that you touched on, you know, we're talking about is around this this idea that everything is a sale. And, and we said that people shy away from things because they don't want to be salesy they want to be authentic and and one of the things i wanted to ask you about authentic authentic is a terrible thing to be (laughs) (laughs) well i don't know one of the things that you talk about i think is is about how you can tackle objections without being pushy or salesy and i wondered if you could talk about that a little bit well speaking to you as a fellow nlp practitioner you understand the concept of pattern interrupts yeah So the basic idea for you civilians out there is that people think and respond and feel in fixed patterns. When you break those patterns, they become extremely suggestible temporarily, and you can lead them to different conclusions. Now, in NLP, I don't want to dive too deeply into NLP, but we have meaning reframes, et cetera, et cetera. So just a simple thing. If someone says, uh, I need more time to think it over, a traditional sales response would be, well, what would we have to clear up right now so you could feel good making a good decision? Which isn't bad. That's fine. But I like to use a pattern interrupt. So if someone says, I need more time to think it over, I'd say, have you ever had the experience where the longer you took to think something over, the worse the decision you made? Now, that's going to take that. Of course, that's a universal experience. Now I'm attaching pain to the behavior that they were presenting to me. So that requires them to erase it. And I'll say, maybe it's not about time, but about the clarity you need to recognize this is a good decision. So now I reframed the entire thing away from time and made it about clarity, which then opens the possibility for me making a sale. And it presupposes that, of course, it's a great idea. They're just not clear on why yet. So then, from there, they would that would open the door for them to open any question, have any questions that they're yeah. not actually the asking. Thing. Don't presuppose your your prospect or client knows what the objection is. They may just be confused or not understand, and no one wants to say I'm confused. Very even fewer people want to say I feel stupid. Hmm. Many of them just feel stupid to ask the right questions. Like I should understand this. Why am I? How many times have you gotten the message you're stupid or you? can't do something so don't assume that your prospect has the ability to trust their own decisions they don't nowadays it's not enough and uh, if you take nothing away from this interview 
than this. Take this away, listeners and watchers, viewers. It's not enough to get your prospect to know, like, and trust you. It's not enough. You still have to do it. You have to get them to trust themselves, trust their own ability to make a good decision. And it's very hard to do that unless you have a very sophisticated person on the other end of the communication because they're overwhelmed, they're numbed out, they're dumbed down. And paradoxically, they're more sophisticated than ever because they've heard all the techniques, the taglines, they're annoying, are they not? The um, assume closes, would you like it in red or green? All the yes ladders, they've heard it before. And it, so they, it doesn't work. Your competition has used it, you've used it, it's stale. So you're facing an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, they're numbed out from all the overwhelm. They're dumbed down by TV and media, but they're also more sophisticated because they've heard all the pitches and your competition is doing it. That's why if you want to really win big at the game, you've got to have a completely different way of playing. I love that. And and I guess the other thing that's quite interesting as well is is not, and I don't know if you agree with this, but in terms of the way that you tackle these objections and the whole sales conversation, would you agree that being detached from the outcome is is really, I mean, obviously you want to, but but I think when people make it the yes or no that they get about themselves and they become attached, they can become desperate and that's when the pushiness comes in. I don't know if there's anything you've, you've got views around that. Right on. I like to say be interested in the sale, but be invested in your skills. In a, in a breakfast of bacon and eggs, the pig is invested, the chicken is interested. So <laughs> this is what I think. I like to say I keep my frame. I keep my frame unattached and process-oriented and wield the twin swords of humor and outcome independence. Perfect. I love that. And I train myself every morning I say this, and I train my clients every morning and every night to say that. When they wake up before they get out of bed and when they lay their head down on that pillow, get it into the mind because the mind works on repetition, familiarity, and momentum. So we just have to get it in there. So could you say that again? Because that was a brilliant thing. Let people hear that. Right. I keep my frame uninvested and process-oriented and wield the twin swords of humor and outcome independence. Perfect. You've heard Richard Bandler say, or you've seen him or heard him say, if you're being serious, you're in trouble. You're in a world of shite, if I can say that. <laughs> Absolutely. You can be that Richard, one of the most profound things I ever heard come out of Richard's mouth was, you can be thorough without being serious. Absolutely. That's a million dollar lesson that he taught me. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really true. And I think it's one of the things that you have to learn about business is is, is kind of that it's it's a game. And 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 basically, I often I often hear this, and I think it's it's quite, you know money is about keeping score, but you've got to treat it, you've got to be playful, you've got to be you know, you know open, and and it's a game. Yeah, how can you be playful and unattached and at the same time be precise? Precision is is how can you be compassionate with yourself and your clients and be playful and be precise? If you only have if you, look, service is great, but 
if you're not precise about getting your outcome, you're going to be uh, a one-night stand. You give all your service, but wait, what, what, what just happened? Where's my, where's my share? Where's more? Yeah, yeah. And this is, important, uh, this is particularly something that people who are service-minded and impact-driven have to really get that they're not just in service. They're also, I, to me, sales or influence is about service times suggestion. You have to do both. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you're not, you're not just in service, you're also in business. Very few people can see the value unless they're paying for it. But also, I'm thinking, hey, if I'm tripling someone's results, if I create, I say to people, if I can give you a dollar that you would never, ever see, would you give me 10 cents? And you'd be surprised. And most people get that math and go, sure. Cool. Well, one of the things that you talked about was using humor uh, and, you know, keeping keeping uh, things light. And so that's something that comes across, I think, in your speaking. You, you know, you have great reviews as a speaker. And you see, you know, you obviously have the audience in the palm of your hand. And I wondered if you could take me through, given that this is the speaking club, take me through your process uh, that you go through to put your talks together. Well, I have some primary themes that I come back to over and over and over again. I just keep hammering on those points. I may tell them in a different way. Mm-hmm. So... And actually, tell you the truth, I've been dealing with these topics for 20 years now, 30 years, so I don't even need to think it through at this point. I just have a general, like composing, I have a general idea of the melody and the harmony, very much like a composer. I think of myself as someone who composes, but I've done enough. I put my 10,000 hours in, so I get it that way. But the second thing is, I have to just say, I'm a natural ham. I've always loved the spotlight. I love a camera. You turn cameras on me and I'm alert. I love the look of that lens in my face. I just love, I'm a natural ham. So, but I do believe this. To be really good as a speaker, you have to believe three things. You have to believe that your message is important, if not crucial. You have to believe that your audience need has got to hear it. They need to hear it. And you have to believe that in that moment, at least, you're the only person in the world who can get it across to them. You have those three beliefs, and the rest of it is stagecraft that you can learn. You can pretty much learn anywhere. As far as being funny and entertaining, I can't claim credit. I've always been that way. I was the class clown at my family dinner table because I come from a big family. We had five siblings. One of them passed on. Um, but we were they were except for my little brother, older than I was and more educated. So I had to compete. And so we had debates at the dinner table. We'd argue my way of getting attention was to be funnier than my siblings. So I'm a natural, I'm naturally funny. I naturally love to entertain. I, I'm sure those skills can be taught. I don't know how to teach them. That's a job for another NLP or to come along and to break down the structure of my talent and that's not so natural to me that I can I cannot teach it. I can teach languages, but I can't teach you how to be funny. So in terms of that composition, I understand where you're coming from in terms of a talk because I think it's it's quite interesting. So going back to comedy, so obviously I I do stand up comedy, and what you have is you have 
sets of jokes that you can when you you're looking at an audience or thinking about the audience that you've got you're putting a talk, you know putting a comedy set together with jokes that you think will work for that audience and I think also in speaking there's a way that you can do that too and I think that's kind of what you're saying because I think you you know you must think about the audience that you're speaking to and think about what content that you've got that works for that will work best for that audience for where you want to take them to and the outcome you want from the talk true and typically what I'll do is I have like three metaphors or stories that I have in my back pocket that I will use that really communicate the message so my structure is first I set up the expectation I'll tell them look this is bat bleep crazy this is not what you're used to hearing. You have three possible responses you can have to me. Number one, you go, I already know this, Paul. I can easily do it. About 10% of what I say, you'll think, that's a little out there, but I'll give it a try. But 85%, you're going to think, Paul's off his bleeping rocker. No way. And I want to encourage you to get excited when that happens because it's the very ways of thinking, feeling, and acting that stands so far outside of what we're used to doing to hold the potential of you getting results. They're so far outside of what you're used to enjoying. So now I've inoculated them so that they're ready to receive my message through the filter that I want them to receive it. I have that standard thing. And then I often will break patterns. If I'm doing a training, I'll say, don't take notes. I forbid you from taking notes. And there's like, what? I'll say, Get the transmission, look up here, you'll get it conceptually and unconsciously. And later, you can do notes, and I'll, or I'll give you the PDF of this talk. I break the expectation of what they're used to doing, and I'll ask questions. I'll say, now, what did I just mean by that? You over there. And I'll go, what? <laughs> what I meant. I keep them engaged and involved. That's excellent, excellent. And how do you get the balance right between content, stories, and humor? Do you think about that, or do you just is it something that you've just naturally? I'm, after doing this so long, I can say, well, thirty-five point five percent should be stories. Eighteen point seven three percent should be doesn't work. But I think you must, even though you know you're you're consciously you know thinking about where the audience you want to take the audience you're probably 100% present with them and connected to them for Absolutely. the duration of your talk. Absolutely. You, I, I love that connection. Mm. And I, you know, one of the things I love the most is I'm not there to present facts or to give them an incremental understanding. I want to totally transform the way they look at it so they can never go back to the old ways of understanding. The metaphor I use is when you were a child, there was a time when you couldn't tell time. And you had to struggle. But one day you were able, to, I walked out and I heard the cuckoo clock in the living room. I was able to read the time. And I could never go back to ever not being able to read it. And I didn't know it at the time, but it formed the foundation of being able to show up for talks like this, to see how much time I had to complete a task. It became the foundation for a lot of things. So, by the way, that's a great hypnotic metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> this is a little amazing in that. Yeah, lovely. Well, listen, Paul, you've shared some absolutely amazing things, and thank you for that. I um, love it. I've got some standard questions that I ask all my guests. Fire away. Okay, cool. So um, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? 
it's given me the ability to get my message across and to see lives transform because the lights go on and, and they walk out of there never being able to think in the same way ever again. I've, I have done my job as someone who's service-oriented and mission and impact-driven. Brilliant. I love that. And have you ever had a bad gig? Is there one that sticks in your mind? You're like, yeah. oh. Yeah, sucks bad. I was getting out of a lift, and I misstepped, and I just fell flat without being able to know it. And my arm was bloody and bruised, and I had like a minor concussion. I was literally bleeding with a towel wrapped in ice and I was in so much pain, I couldn't pay attention. They had not briefed me on the kind of audience. They didn't tell me it would be a town hall. I went in there expecting to speak and they told me never come back. I don't want our name associated with yours. So everyone has a screw up. Yeah, but you got to get back on the horse. Ah. I just saw it as, Everyone gets slapped in the face once in a while when you're, you know, going for it. So I don't care. If you're not getting a few stumbles and you're not playing large. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Next question. What's the one book that you've read that's had most impact on your life and why? Wow. It's a good question. Um, I would say The Age of Reason by Thomas Paine. It turned me from a believer into an agnostic. Oh, interesting. So tell me a bit more. What, what, what was so profound about it? I was a believer. Uh, I'm going to offend people. I don't mean to change. If you're watching this and listening, your beliefs are your beliefs. Did it enrich your life, though, besides that? Yeah, it taught me how to think critically. Interesting. What was the name of the book? The Age of Reason by... Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine was one of the founding fathers of this of the United States. Wow. Okay, I'm going to put a link to that in the in the show notes. I'll check. P A I N E. Right. Part one and part two. You've intrigued me. I will check that out. Okay. So next question: What's the best bit of business advice you've ever had, and why? I discovered this myself. Any substantial deal, more than ten thousand dollars, hire a private investigator to check out that person. Better to spend five grand on a private investigator than hundreds of thousands on a lawsuit. Wow, gosh, that's, a, that's really interesting, cool, okay. I've been in lawsuits and they cost a lot of money. Yeah, um, last question then. If you could have one mentor, alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? My current mentors are, uh, well, first of all, my mother was an incredible mentor. I can't bring her back. It would be kind of weird if I did. Uh, My meditation teacher, Shinzen Young, uh, is, to me, the greatest teacher of my life. He dwarfs even Richard Bandler in terms of his intellect. He's the most brilliant human being I've ever met. I studied with Richard. No offense to Richard, but he dwarfs Richard. He's he's on Einstein level. And he taught me to meditate. And how, do you meditate often, Paul? Not nearly as much as, as I used to. Uh, I, I really would benefit from doing more. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that stuff. Um, it has been an adventure uh, talking with you, and I've learned stuff, and I'm sure people uh, have learned loads from you. Is there anything else that you think you need sure. to add to the conversation to call it complete? I would just say... 
look, I, I only work with people who are already doing really well. If you recognize that that's you, uh, again, time is money. Your time is money. My time is money. I'm not going to ask you to jump through hoops and follow me or do anything. Just email me directly. Contact me immediately. It's Paul at speakerpaulross.com. Just send me an email if you if that's you. Cool. And this has had a real strong impact on you. Paul at speakerpaulross.com. Cool. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. And you also have a book. Uh, what's the name of the book in case people want to check that out? Subtle Words That Sell. Look at that handsome devil. Wow. He's uh, he's rocking the cover there. People can't see that. but he, he Photoshop is. and professional retouching. <laughs> Excellent. Subtle Words That Sell. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. And if people want to find you online, um, where's the best place for them to go? Obviously, we've talked about if they, if they want to work with you, email us. Uh, speaker Paul Ross forward slash LinkedIn. Cool. That's my LinkedIn. Brilliant. Okay. Lovely. And again, we'll put that in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Paul, um, for sharing all of that stuff. Sure. Uh, you've been amazing and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. Well, there you go. Paul certainly has a way with words. I'm sure that's given you some aha moments around how you can make your talks more powerful through the language that you use. And if you want to find out more about Paul, then all the links are in the show notes. And do let him know if what he talked about today resonated with you. Now, Paul certainly illustrated the power of personal stories to shift an audience. And if you want to find the stories from your life and get some help crafting them into assets that you can use in your talks, videos, podcasts or webinars, then do check out my Snackable Story Challenge. They're completely free and I run them regularly. And you can find out more and register for the next one at saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for joining me. It means the world. And uh, if you enjoy the show, but you haven't yet left a review, why not? No, I'm just kidding. But if you haven't, and you can spare two minutes, then I'd be really grateful if you could do that for me. And uh, you can do that over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. And it really will take you just a couple of minutes to do that. I will be back soon to keep you moving forward on your speaking and marketing journey. And in the meantime, you know the drill. Don't you forget to grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free snackable story challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. 
The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.